We're in this series that we're calling Practical Atheists. If you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to take them and turn to the book of Titus. Uh, Go to the New Testament, uh, to the book of Titus, chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verse 16 here together in just a moment. If you're new, uh, you might be wondering what in the world is a practical atheist. Uh, we, again, we've been talking about this for the last few weeks. If you want to take notes and follow along, here's a, here's a definition for you. A practical atheist is someone who believes in God, but lives as if he doesn't exist. A practical atheist is someone who believes in God, but lives as if he doesn't exist. And in Titus, uh, Paul was writing this letter talking about describing what a practical atheist looked like then, but I think even looks like the same today too. Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. Here's what he says. He says, hey, they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. You know, they believe in God, these people. There will be many that will say that they believe in God. They claim to know Him. But their actions will be the greatest indicator of what's really going on on the inside. And they'll deny him by their actions uh, against this truth. They'll deny him with their lifestyle. They claim to know God. But, but their actions, they tell a completely different story about what's really going on on the inside. Uh, the verse goes on to say that they are test- detestable. They are disobedient and unfit for doing anything good. These half-hearted, middle of the road, one foot in, one foot out, so-called followers of Jesus. They're detestable, unfit for doing anything good. Practical atheists. They claim to know God, but their actions completely tell a different story. You know, the truth is that a number of people claim to believe in God. We've been talking about this one particular Gallup poll that suggests that 94% of Americans believe in God today. Believe it or not, seriously, 94% believe in God. But while 94% may believe in God, there's no way that this comes anywhere close to, to those who really know God or have a relationship with God. Because it's one thing to believe in God, it's another thing to have a personal relationship with God. And that's really the heart of this whole series. It, it kind of comes down to this question today for you, and it's this. Do you know God personally? I mean, can you say that you have a personal relationship with God made available to you through Jesus Christ? Over the past few weeks, we've talked about fearing God. You know why? You know, the importance of fearing God. I mean, why is it that we are so bent on doing what we want? To fear God means to have this reverent awe of Him. To come to this place where we understand who He is and what He's done for us, and it changes the way that we live. And we can't help but live for God in everything that we do. Last week we talked about the, the danger of saying, you know, I, I believe in God, but I don't want to go overboard. You know, there's no way that I want to be categorized as a fanatic or, or something like that. And so I'll take a little bit of God, but I'm not going to go overboard. And we talked about what it means to be lukewarm. You know, in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 3, where Jesus said, you know, you're so lukewarm to this group of people living in Laodicea. I just wish you had a purpose. You're so lukewarm. You, you say you're one thing, you live another. I want to I vomit you out of my mouth. I mean, Jesus says, I want to spit you out of my mouth. You know, I can't stand the way that you choose to live. Well, today I want to talk to you about knowing God and what it means to have a personal relationship with him. Because honestly, it's possible to believe in God, but not really know him. It's possible to believe in God, but not really know him. Have you ever played the game with some friends, uh, maybe your connection group, uh, this game of who is the most famous person you've ever met? 
All right, maybe it was an icebreaker in a group or whatever, but who is the most famous person you've ever met? Well, I don't have many, but there's one that I'm kind of proud of, and it's a picture that I keep in my office. Uh, it's a picture of Muhammad Ali, uh, me and the champ. Believe it or not, this is not a doctored photo in any way. Uh, this is me and the champ about ready to throw down a little bit. Uh, but uh, anyways, there are two things that I find pretty comical about this picture. The first is the fact that that really is Muhammad Ali. The second is how stupid I look there standing next to him and, and how goofy and whatever was going on there. But anyway, we used to live in St. Joseph, Michigan. And Muhammad Ali lived about 20 miles away, 20 minutes away in a little community called Berrien Springs, Michigan. He had this place. And if you had grown up in St. Joe or had been there for a while, much longer before Jenny and I ever arrived there, it wasn't uncommon that you would bump into Muhammad Ali once in a while. Uh, whether you'd see him on the beach there at Lake Michigan or see him at the movie theater or in a restaurant. Uh, many people in our church had a story about bumping into Muhammad Ali, getting his autograph and spending a little bit of time with him. You know, I hadn't ever met him and we lived there five years. And before I left, I, I just wanted a chance to meet Muhammad Ali. Well, one of my buddies uh, was friends with his family. And he had grown up in Berrien Springs as well. And so on this one particular day, uh, Muhammad Ali and his family invited my buddy Eric to bring some friends out. And so there were about 10 of us. And we went out to his place, his little estate there in Berrien Springs. Uh, he lived on this, this nice estate that was an Al Capone estate, actually, where Al Capone used to live. And uh, we went there and we went into Muhammad Ali's office and we got to spend about an hour with him. And uh, he told some stories, and this is kind of a famous photo. If you have your picture taken with him, he always lifts up your fists and pulls it up to his face. And it was just really cool to think, wow, I'm standing here with Muhammad Ali. And, and one thing that's just kind of interesting, if you look just above his head, right by that clock to the right, uh, is uh, the Olympic torch that he used uh, to light. Uh, and there were these great pictures around the room. Nelson Mandela had been in that office. And Will Smith, when he was training for the movie Ali, spent some time there. Uh, we got to see uh, this boxing ring that was a setup where his daughter trains. And just all of this really cool stuff. And, and, and so it was just, for me, it was just really neat. You know, to be able to spend, you know, just a little bit of time there. And, and it would be so easy for me to say that I, I know Muhammad Ali. And I know him. I spent an hour with him, you know. So I, I, I know him. If I, I think he lives in Louisville now. If I were to show up at his residence down there this afternoon, chances are I'd probably have a little difficulty getting to the front door, you know, even with a picture like this. Uh, that I'd be met by a, an armed guard or some sort of vicious dog, maybe of the uh, bull variety or something. But, uh, you know, I'd have, I'd have a problem kind of leaning on this picture. of uh, Yeah, I, I know Muhammad Ali. And, and it's one thing for me to say that I know him, but it's another thing for me to say that I actually have a personal relationship with him. I mean, it's possible to believe in God, maybe even know him, but to not have that relationship with him. I mean, I think we can know God on, on varying levels and to different degrees. And, you know, I want to just spend a few minutes this morning breaking down for you the truth that a relationship with God is more than believing in God. That a relationship with God is more than believing in God. It's about knowing Him too. And, and so I just want to look at kind of several different levels of how we can know God or several different places that we can find ourselves kind of in this journey of knowing God better. And, and sure, these aren't all encompassing, but I think they kind of get us into the ballpark. And, and so as we look at these three ways of knowing God, here's what I want to challenge you to do. I'd like to challenge you to take an honest evaluation of where you are this morning. That's all I'll ask of you. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or anything. I would just like for you to honestly evaluate where you are in your understanding or your relationship with God right now. 
And, and I want to be honest, that, that might be a painful discovery for some of you. To just even acknowledge of, I, I don't really know God, or I know Him, but He gets very little of my heart or my time. But let's pray that God will use this morning to do something in your life today. You know, even if it's just that starting point of honestly acknowledging where you are right now, let's pray that God will do something great. Can I pray for you? God, we just pray this morning, we invite you to do what it is that you want to do here today. And I pray, God, that in no way would I stand in the way of the work that you want to do. And I know that you've started a process, that you've been doing a work in some people's lives over these last couple of weeks here at Genesis, God. Would you complete that work today? Or would you take another great step in that? And, and for those that are here this morning, and they may be here for the first time, and, and maybe you're just even a guest or a family member, Lord, we just pray that you would do what you want to do in this short amount of time that we've been given. And, and we trust you with every bit of it. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So three levels, three different degrees of knowing God. The first one is this, that some people believe in God, but they don't really know Him. Some people believe in God, but they don't really know him. And to some of you, you might reply, well, you know, isn't, isn't knowing enough, isn't believing enough. And it's one thing to say you believe in him, but it's another thing to say, I know God. I have a relationship with God. Because believing isn't enough. And as we pointed out, you know, even the Bible says in the book of James that the demons know God and the thought of that shut, it makes them shudder. I mean, they believe in God and it makes them, it makes them shiver. You know, and today we have a lot of people who believe in God and, and they might even be called, they might even call themselves a Christian or, or we might even call what, what's been, what's been said a, a cultural Christian. You know, somebody that'll say, well, yeah, you know, I grew up, my, my, my mom was Catholic, my, my dad was Baptist. And so I'm a little confused about how it all works out. But, you know, I put in my time once in a while and I'd go to mass with my mom or maybe attend church with my dad once in a while. Uh, I'd get there on Christmas Eve and, you know, I try and do good things. But, but people like this will say, you know, I believe in God. But their actions don't really indicate that they have an intimate knowledge of God or a relationship with Him. Now, the Bible talks to this in 1 John chapter 2, uh, verses 3 and 4. John writes, we know that we have come to know Him if we obey His commands. I don't think that verse could say it any clearer for us. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. I mean, what's the indicator according to John right here? It's knowing, and the key word here is obeying. I mean, do you want to give yourself a test? I mean, what's a great indicator of measuring where you are with God right now? How often do you listen to him? You know, what does obedience to God look like in your life? I mean, it's not asking for perfection. Okay, please, please don't. Please don't fall into that trap of thinking that this is perfection that God is asking for here. But it's just this ever-increasing desire in you to obey God at all costs, whatever it takes. I mean, do you obey His commands? Are you seeking to live the way that, you know, He lived? Does, does the love of God, does the very presence of God in your life influence your actions? I mean, is it changing you? Is it motivating you? I mean, there are so many people today who say they know God, but then they deny him with their actions. There's no outward obedience. And the last part of the verse here, verse four says, the man says, I know him, but does not do what he commands. The Bible says is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Practical atheist. You know, they just don't see it. They don't know God. And, and the reality is that today, a lot of people know something of God, but they don't really know him. 
Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, Jesus was teaching to a group of people, talking a lot about what the Christian life looks like, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And here's what he says in verse 21. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my father who is in heaven. And many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I mean, this verse goes as far as saying is that there are people living today who believe in God and even call themselves Christians. But they're not. And Jesus says that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And so just hang on that for a second and and let that kind of consume you of of the power and the reality of such a statement. And I think it could do one of two things to you. I think it has to cause you to come to this place where you say, what does this do to me? And not that it can be taken away in any way. That's not what I'm suggesting. But but are you able to, in your own life, point back to this moment where you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, where you made a decision with your own life, God, I, I want you to be the center of my life. I want Jesus. I mean, I think it has to cause you to ask that question for yourself because that's the heart of what Jesus is getting to here. You know, some just never had that moment where they invited Jesus to be their Lord and their personal Savior. But I, I think it has to do something else in you too. I think it has to raise some urgency. I think it has to raise the flag a little bit of who in your life right now, whether it be a family member, a friend, a neighbor, whatever it may be. I mean, does this in any way, you know, just raise this urgency in you of of helping people to know God, to reach out to them. You know, as we go into this Thanksgiving season, you're going to sit down with some of your family members to quit delaying the conversation. You know, let's just talk for a second. Let's, Let's talk about where you are with God right now. You know, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter heaven, but who? Only he who does the will of my father. Well, how, how, how does this influence or how should this influence our way of thinking? Well, I just think it needs to correct our incorrect thinking. You know, attending Sunday school is not enough to save you. Going to church on Sundays, you know, even if it's three times, you know, out of the month is not enough to save you. Being baptized as an infant is not enough to save you. Getting confirmed is not enough to save you. At some point in your life, if you never have before, you need to make a decision with your own mouth and your own heart to trust Jesus with your life. And what scares me today is that some of you have never made that decision before. And you're kind of blinded by the truth. The truth that I think is so real and so evident in Scripture. That you need to say with your mouth and say with your heart that Jesus Christ is the Lord of all. And Christ, I want you to come in and to forgive me and because of Christ's death and resurrection, we have been freed. And the Bible says that we have been forgiven. The Bible says that we can receive eternal life. And I think some of you this morning, you need to quit delaying that decision in your life. You need to invite Jesus Christ to come in and to change you, you know, to give you this new life, to experience God's love for yourself. You know, every week at the end of the service, we talk about a group of people that will be down front ready to talk to you if you need to talk some more. And some of you need to do that today. You need to quit putting it off. And we're going to be available to you after the service. If it's not with one of these people, please talk to a trusted friend. Talk to someone that you know is a believer in Jesus that that kind of understands what the Bible says and share with them about the decision that you want to make in your life. That's a great thing. It'll change you forever. 
It's an awesome decision that we believe that everyone should make. It's confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And the hard part is, is that there are so many good people out there. Even here this morning, you're good people and you believe in God, but you don't know him personally. You know, he's not the driving force behind what you do. There's no intimacy. There's no relationship. And so here's what I think you need to do today. You need to invite Jesus to be the Lord of your life. And you need to experience the victory that has been given to us through his death and his resurrection. And think about that and pray about that. We'll have some people up front after the service this morning that would love to talk to you. There's another group, another way of knowing God, another degree of knowing God I think that many of us fall into. And it's that that there are those who believe in God and they know him, but they don't know him very well. They believe in God and they know him, but they don't know him well. And this is a big group. You know, it's believing in God and knowing him, but not very well. I spent four years of my teenage life uh, working for an appliance company uh, in Springfield, Illinois, where I grew up. So a couple of years of high school on into a couple of years of college, uh, we delivered and installed refrigerators, washers and dryers, dishwashers, all that stuff. A great job, you know, for a young teenage guy uh, just to learn some skills and, and all that kind of stuff. Our company had an 18-foot box truck, big yellow box truck. Uh, you had to have a special CDL in order to drive this big stick shift. And, and one day my boss said to me, he said, Paul, I'd like for you to work on getting your license to be able to drive that truck. And so I got the manual and I studied the manual and I spent time with the manual. And then I went down uh, to the BMV to take my written test. You had to take the written test first just to get your permit to begin even driving the truck. And so I took that written test and it was a tough test. It was difficult. It was complicated, but I passed. Uh, I received my driver's permit. It was like being 15 all over again. You know, I got my, my piece of paper that said I could drive with someone and, and then I, I took it back with me to work. Well, the very next day, my boss came up to me and you've got to know my boss. He was this big guy uh, from Chicago uh, you know, just strong guy, rough language, deep Chicago accent. And uh, he, if I were going into a battle and I could take one guy with me, I'd go find Ken. This would be the guy that I would take with me into battle. But with this deep accent, he said, yo, Paul, he said, let's go. Let's get in the truck. We're going down to the license branch. You're going to take your driving test today. And I kind of jumped in at that moment like, I just got my permit yesterday. I haven't even driven the truck yet. And he immediately replied back, oh, no problems. I'll let you drive down there. All right. So my first time driving this 18 foot truck was on the way to go take my driver's test. And believe it or not, by the spirit and the power of God working in that situation in the cab of that truck, I passed. Believe it or not, that shouldn't be an encouragement to any of you, especially if you're driving through Illinois over the holidays. If you're seeing somebody driving a box truck. You better be concerned of whether they had a legit test or not. But I passed this test and I received my permit or my license and I was all ready to go. But, and, and, but the point of the story is this, you know, I think it's possible to have all of the knowledge and to know the right answers to all, if not most of the questions when it comes to knowing God, but to have little or no time invested in the actual relationship with him. And many of you, you know God, but you don't have a lot of time. You don't have many hours clocked. When it comes to really enjoying the benefits of a relationship with God, the creator of heaven, 
and, and you know God and you've crossed the line, as some would say, and you can even look back to that point where you invited Jesus Christ to be the Lord of your life, and it was true and it was genuine, and there's no doubt about that at all. A gift given to you at that very moment of eternal life. And, and maybe there was even a season where some would say, quote unquote, you were on fire, but, but maybe even the, eventually that burnt off. And, but at some point, you just kind of fell into the motions of what seems to happen so often to Christians today in the church, in the U.S. We, we just start going through the motions. And so we know God, but we don't have a lot of time invested in the relationship. And honestly, he's not the driving point of your life. And so you would say, hey, I'm, I'm a classic, practical atheist. I mean, you've got all the knowledge, you know the right answers, but the transforming work of God is missing from your life. You know, the benefits of enjoying what God offers to us are, are gone. Or, or maybe you're here every week and you serve and maybe even give, give it financially. But sadly for you, it's like something is missing for you in that relationship with God. It's almost like you've forgotten what he offers to us, what he's made available to you and me. Things like what Psalm 23 says when it says, The Lord is my shepherd. That God has promised to walk with us each day through the ups and downs, the mountains, the valleys of life, no matter what we may face, God has promised to be our guide. Even when we're not sure what lies ahead. Where Psalm 91 says that He is our refuge and He is our fortress. That God has promised to all those who call on His name that He alone will be our strength. Uh, Philippians says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Or Lamentations chapter 3 reminds us that God is faithful. And, and I love what the verse says, His mercies are new to us every morning. That, that following God, trusting Jesus, does not mean that you have to be perfect in order to receive His love. It just means that you've got to be able to point to Jesus. And say, Jesus is my God. His mercies are new every morning because of what God has done for us in Jesus. Even when we fail, his mercy is great. It never ends. His love is great. Isaiah 40 says that God brings us comfort. You know, that we can put our trust in him, that we can lean on him, that he will come through for you. And I just wonder for some of you, are you at a place where it's time to make yourself more and more available to God? To say, God, I'm tired of being a practical atheist. I'm tired of going through the motions. I'm tired of being the so-called one foot in, middle of the, one foot in, one foot out, middle of the road follower of Jesus. I'm ready for you to begin the work of taking more and more of me. I realize you're available to me, but take more of me, God. Which kind of leads into the last thing that I want to talk about, the last level. That there are those who believe in God and know him intimately and serve him wholeheartedly. And there are people like this right here, even in our church. And this is my prayer, and this is my hope for every single one of you. That you will know God intimately, and that you will serve Him wholeheartedly. That you would believe in God, that you would know Him, that you would serve Him. It's why we've introduced what we call the three C's into our ministry plan as a church. Uh, kind of three driving forces, three goals that we can all strive for in our desire to know God better. And as a church, we believe that our mission is to help people find their way back to God. That that is our call. That is what we've been called by God to do, is to help people find their way back to God. But here's the thing. We won't accomplish that. We can't do something unless you and I aren't willing to allow God to do something in us. And you and I have to be changed in all of this. And so the three C's are about striving. We want everyone to grow in three areas. We call them again the three C's. The first one is this. It's to celebrate. 
to celebrate the work of God in your life, his love for you in Jesus Christ. That's our great motivation. You know, you can say, I know and I understand what Jesus Christ has done for me. And that is the motivation behind everything that I do. It's celebrating that work. We call it worship here on Sundays. You know, when we come together, you know, it has a lot to do with what happens in here on Sunday mornings. And my desire for you is that throughout the progression of your life and in your growth, that you will move from simply being a spectator here on Sunday mornings to becoming a participant in worship. That you come ready and prepared, that your heart is open, ready to serve and to follow God and what he wants to do inside of you. Another C is what we just call, let's connect. Our second C is connect. It's connecting to others through Jesus. And I'm a firm believer in our connection groups and where we hope to go with these groups. Uh, At the end of December, 1st of January, we'll be inviting those who aren't currently in a group uh, to get into a group with others. You'll have the opportunity to build relationships. But it's so much more than just signing up for a group and saying, well, because Paul's asked it of us or whatever, I'm going to do it. Again, it's about inviting yourself. It's about you allowing yourself to become more than a spectator. It's by saying, I want to be a participant in this too. I want to know others. I want to be known. It's about reaching out to one another and encouraging each other through the good times and the bad times. The final C is, is the word contribute. Now, we want everyone to contribute to the work that God is doing in this world to make things right once again. It's you and I coming to this place where we say, you know, God, I want to make my time available to you. I want to serve with my time. It's, it's God, I want to serve with my talents. I realize that you've given me these gifts. I realize that you've given me these skills and abilities. How can I take them to serve you? How can I use them for, for service? Or it's these resources that you've given to me, God. How, how can I invest these financial resources that you've given to me into kingdom work? How can I be generous with my life? You know, it's God moving you and transforming you. And you can think of nothing greater to do with your life but to serve the one who loves you in a great way. Believe in God, know him intimately, serve him wholeheartedly. I mean, it's what God wants for us, for those of us who call ourselves Christians or followers of Jesus. And that's what I want in my life. That's what I want my life to be known for. As I think about what this looks in me, I realize that it's about me becoming more and more aware of God's presence in me at all times. That means when I'm overwhelmed or or when I'm anxious or when I'm tempted or when I'm angry. And and it's not like God is here and I am there and I just throw him a prayer every once in a while. But I realize that God is with me more and more. And he wants more than just an hour here on Sunday mornings. He wants every bit of me. He wants every day. And it's about me being ready to hear from him. You know, as I go about my life, as I'm sitting with someone over lunch, as I'm, you know, doing some work in the afternoon, as I go home to be with my family and kids at night, it's to be ready to hear from God. And sometimes God will speak to me in the quiet of my life. And sometimes I have a difficult time finding some quiet places in my life. You probably can relate. Sometimes it's, it's about God speaking to me through, through a friend, through a great friend. Sometimes it's, a, and many times it's God speaking to me through his word. I mean, I, I, I heard someone say one time that God doesn't speak audibly very often anymore because he's given us the Bible. You know, spend some time reading it. It's full of the words of God and what God wants to say into our life. And I want to be ready for this. And, and, and I want to hear from him because when you're trusting God, when I'm trusting God and you're not being led by your own sight or but what you crave, it all changes. It, it's instead about being led by the spirit of God. It's knowing him and serving him wholeheartedly. And so I want, I want to bring this to a conclusion today. And, and that's kind of hard to do. And, you know, for those of you who have sensed God moving in you, 
not wanting to live the life of a practical atheist, I've been thinking about how can, how can I best help you? What, what can I offer you along the way? What, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does God want for each of us? And while I think there's a danger in trying to simplify the answer, you know, and I don't want to just roll out and say, well, here are five steps. Do these five steps and you know God better. You won't be a practical atheist anymore. It's not, it's not that easy. But I want to give you something to hold on to, something to take away with you today that I, I, I hope and pray you won't forget. As I do that, I want to invite the host team uh, to come forward right now. Uh, they're going to be bringing communion. Uh, we'll have the bread and the juice. Uh, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, uh, we invite you to take a piece of that bread and to take a piece of the, or to take a cup of that juice. Uh, and in just a few minutes, uh, we're going to celebrate communion together. But while they do that, and without trying to get too distracted, uh, I pray that you'll be able to keep your focus on me as we kind of wrap this up and as we as we use this time to lead into our communion. You know, here, here's what I've been realizing over the last few weeks in a book that I've been reading, that the story of Moses is really a pretty remarkable story. You know, when you think about his life, I mean, to start, he was basically abandoned by his mother. Uh, he was taken to a river uh, where he was left, where he was found by a woman from the palace, by, from the Egyptian palace. And, and here's this guy who was taken into the palace and for 40 years, he enjoyed the benefits of living in luxury. He enjoyed the benefits of the palace. But here's what he found out along the way. What Moses discovered is that he really wasn't like anyone else around him. You know, he was kind of the foreigner. He was kind of the stranger, the alien in all of this. Growing up with these benefits, when his people, the people he was really like, were on the outside. They were the slaves. They were the ones being overworked and beaten and tortured. And one day, all of this hit him. And so Moses hit someone. He went outside and he hit one of the Egyptian workers and he killed him. And, and, and he had to run. He had to run for his life at this point. He can no longer enjoy the benefits of the palace. And so he ran into the desert. And so he went from 40 years of luxury to 40 years in the wilderness. And he spent the next 40 years of his life alone, in isolation, serving as a shepherd for some sheep in the wilderness. But I found, isn't it interesting that God required him to go spend 40 years by himself in the wilderness before he allowed him to take 40 years to lead a group of people to the promised land. He had to take that journey first. And God eventually called him out of this wilderness and somewhat reluctantly and even hopelessly, he led the people out of Egypt and little by little he started following God. And the people of Israel followed God too as they crossed the Red Sea, as they wandered through the the wilderness for 40 years following God. And there were times when Moses demonstrated this incredible faith and there were times where it wasn't so incredible. But the whole story of Moses and these Israelites is really kind of a complicated story of all these parallel stories happening at the same time. First of all, there's a group of people. There's all these Israelites who are trusting God, believing that even a slave's life in Egypt wasn't will, worth going back to, but instead this place, Canaan, the promised land that God was taking them, a 40-year investment. There's another story happening there, and it's, it's really a story of God's holiness. Uh, it's a story of sin. It's a story of justice, things being made right, Ten Commandments, all of that stuff. Again, another parallel story happening at the same time. But there's one final story that's happening there too, at least one more. And that's the personal journey of Moses. 
Because even though he was the leader in all this, it wasn't like he was just some pawn to be used to get God's people from one place to another. There was a personal story, a personal journey happening in the life of this guy by the name of Moses. And if you don't recall the story, or maybe you do, here's what happened. At the very end of the journey, Moses didn't get the opportunity to go into the promised land. Because of some poor decisions he had made along the way, part of his punishment was that he didn't get to walk into the promised land with everyone else. But the fascinating part of the story is this. That even while God offered him this one unique little privilege of being able to stand on top of the mountain and look into the promised land right before his death, there's one thing that you won't find in Scripture. You won't find Moses arguing with God. God, would you give me another chance? Would you, would you reconsider? And here's what I think had really happened in Moses' life and really plays out at the top of that mountain as Moses looks over into the promised land. I think Moses knew and realized that for him, the promised land wasn't what was on the other side of the mountain. His promised land was his relationship with God. And that was the greatest gift that had been given to him all along the way, all 120 years of his life. And then he knew that in that moment he was about to lose his life, but he had already gained it. That he was going to go meet his Father in heaven, and Jesus Christ. And what an awesome thing for him. My prayer for you is that your relationship with God would become the very great motivation and passion of your life. That you would know and understand that nothing that you are looking for in this world would ever come about through what the world has to offer. Every gift, every dream, every desire that you're looking for will ultimately and only be found in the power of Jesus Christ. And he's made himself available to you. So as we finish, you hold in your hand a piece of bread and a cup of juice. And the night before Jesus died, he sat with his closest followers and he said, I... I'm going to give you something to do to remember me. And this morning, we get to remember what God has done for us through Jesus, the breaking of the bread, his body broken for us. Uh, the juice that reminds us of his bloodshed for the forgiveness of our sins. And uh, I want to invite you kind of in your own time right now, you take the bread and eat it when you're ready. You take the juice and drink it when you're ready. And then I'll pray with us together.